friends, and welcome to episode 25 of She Existed, the podcast wherein I, Ashlyn Romagnoli, share the story of a woman of history and or legend previously unknown to me. Today I'm excited to dive into the story of Aruelo, or Caruelo. There are, of course, many spellings and versions of both her name and the tale. Aruelo is in many ways the quintessential She Existed subject. She definitely could have existed, and even if she did not, her influence is so broad, even into today, that she may as well have existed. Today, she's an historical or folkloric figure, depending on who you ask, in Somali culture. In her own time, she may have lived in a place called Murihiri in Somalia, what was in the early 1900s known as British Somaliland, because uh, this resource is according to a British researcher there at the time, but I also found a breakdown of her name that might mean the country of the Welo, which would place her not in Somalia, but in Ethiopia. Of course, as has already come up, today's country names don't necessarily mean a ton for stuff that happened hundreds or thousands of years ago, so what is probably actually useful for you to know is that Arawilo probably existed in the eastern tip of Africa, you know, near the, the little horn there. And as for when? Well, also tough to say exactly. In legends, she's referred to as living thousands of years ago, and a few sources put her in around 15 CE, so that more or less checks out. That's, a, that's like a little over 2,000 years ago, so I think that counts. What we know about Arawilo is, of course, passed down largely through oral history. I've talked about this on the podcast before. While I can understand why this isn't enough evidence for many uh, for existence, personally, I feel like it counts for quite a bit. Our stories are us in many ways. Random example, actually. Uh, I just read Revolutionary Road, which is a 1961 novel by Richard Yates about suburban life in the U.S. in the 1950s. Stunning book. Highly recommended. Frank and April Wheeler don't exist, though. (laughs) Yates made them up. But they may as well have existed. They are far more real to me than even people I've met who actually lived through the 50s, in part because I'm allowed a more intimate look at their personal lives, something that's super hard to excavate from grandparents who are raised to keep their private lives, well, private. I will never truly know what being a white suburban housewife or husband in the U.S. in the 1950s would have been like, but at least now I feel something about it, and it's closer than I would have gotten just imagining on my own. So that's kind of my point here. Arawelo, like... We have a lot of oral history that suggests that she did exist. It's hard to know exactly what's true about it, but just the fact that we have all of these stories and contexts, like, that brings her to life. Hard, physical evidence is a wonderful thing to have, but scavenging through ancient trash piles doesn't tell us how people related, how they loved. Every time we look at a physical piece of history and try to extrapolate a person from it, we're not only going to be choosing from a nearly limitless number of options, but we're also looking at these things through our own filters of personal experience and culture. I mean, this is both why I have the greatest respect, but also not a little skepticism for the academic world. The burden of proof put upon our fearless archaeologists is understandably huge, and there is a constantly evolving conversation that is pretty fun to keep up with. And it is necessary that this structure exists. But it's also why I didn't end up pursuing academia as a career and now write my little podcast uh, because I can talk about and include all kinds of things that would never pass muster in the academic world. I get to speculate and I get to dream and think and, and I do try to do my best to bring you all things that I am reasonably certain uh, are true and grounded in things that actually happened. Um, but, you know, listen at your own risk, as you know. <laughs> 
Now, if you are interested in the academic version of this subject, I do highly recommend an article called Carowilo, When an Abyssinian Queen Dominates the Horn of Africa 10 Centuries Ago by Abdirakid M. Ismail. And this paper, uh, which I think is supposed to be 10 centuries ago, or I don't know, it said teen centuries ago. I think it's a mistranslation. But anyway, the point of this paper, though, according to the author, um, he says that the only aim is to point out that, quote, this character is so famous and so vivid in Somali collective memory that it is doubtful that she belongs only to legend. So there you have it. There's some some academic support for her having existed. All right. Arawelo, what a fascinating woman. According to most versions of her legend, Arawelo was the eldest of three daughters, which made her the natural heir to the throne of her father. Very interestingly, we have a potential name for her mother, which is Haramanyo, but no name for her father, who was supposedly the king of this area. She was a staunch supporter of the women of her tribe, and going beyond simple equality was by some accounts completely matriarchal, believing women should be in total control. According to one resource I read, this was in part because as a child, she witnessed a great deal of violence and war and believed that, were women in charge, these horrors wouldn't happen as she perceived women as being natural peacekeepers. And even before she was queen, she supposedly organized bands of women to hunt and fetch water for her future subjects so they wouldn't starve, even though traditionally this was a man's job. Yet she also had a reputation for great cruelty and fierceness, Though it is always hard to say how a female ruler's cruelty is measured, like, against, like, a a male ruler's cruelty. Like, my guess is that women tend to be a little more scrutinized on this subject. I mean, maybe not. No one likes a cruel leader, man or woman, but I do think women tend to get a little bit more judgment when they are cruel. Now, as is often the case in stories like this of a strong woman, (laughs) she had a husband who was not quite the supportive spouse one might desire. His name was Biki, and according to the article I quoted earlier, he ended up taking on a sort of um, folk hero role who foils all of Arawila's plots and schemes. Uh, And by the way, her plots and schemes typically included, like, a lot of castration. One version of the tale I read stated that she castrated her own two sons and made them guard her herd. Uh, Is herd the right word? like a herd, a pack, whatever. Anyway, a herd of camels, and that her daughter ran away when she then had a a son, fearing that her own mother might castrate her grandchild as well. Nah. I mean, I take these particular tales with a medium-sized grain of salt. The description of castration as a punishment for rape, which is suggested in one version of the tale, like, it seems pretty fair to me, so (laughs) I could see that happening, um, especially in a matriarchal society. But it's hard to ignore the fact that strong women have always been accused of misandry, whether there was evidence or not. I mean, even today, we use the term ball buster. So, like, if subsequent to her reign, people wanted to discredit her, um, boogie tales of castration would be probably the fastest and most efficient way (laughs) to uh, both tarnish her history and also maybe discourage um, allowing female leaders in the future. Who knows? But what is certainly part of the tale is Biki's dissatisfaction, that's that's her husband, uh, with men being asked to participate in more homekeeping duties, which, I mean, 
I just, I don't know, I feel like he's being a little complainy because at this point in time, women were actually doing a lot of the actual ruling. So it seemed only fair that men would step up and help with the house. Um, but in one version of the tale, Beaky trained his grandson, who, you know, was Arawilo's grandson, uh, of course, the one who supposedly fled from her with his mother to avoid castration. Uh, Beaky trains his grandson in the art of the spear. The little boy took his shot and killed his grandmother, Arawilo, although not many people believed that Arawilo could have been vanquished in this way. So the little boy, the grandson, ties his grandmother's body to his noble steed, either a horse or a camel, and dragged her body throughout the country. As she passed, men stoned the body, and wherever a piece of her, like, fell off or was torn off or whatever, a memorial would often arise. So I read in one account that even today, uh, there are places that are uh, kind of attributed to being her, her burial place or a place where a piece of her fell off, and men will throw stones in such places, uh, and women might leave flowers. So that's strange and <laughs> interesting. Okay, so how her story is seen today is interesting, because despite all the scary stories about castration and the alienation of men in her society, in some ways she's also seen as hearkening to a time in the Somali past where women may have been rulers. And women like her certainly do play an inspirational role for young girls today who may not have had many strong female role models. Although from what I can understand, calling a girl Carawilo as a nickname can be a bit of a double-edged sword. Maybe it implies like strength and power, but also probably a certain obstinacy that is maybe not the most desirable. But it is really interesting to see how myths evolve and change over time. And therefore, it's kind of hard to know what's real, what's fabricated, or what's been emphasized to observe the needs of the time. So nowadays, it's a little more in vogue to try to empower women. So it seems like many people think that the castration and misandry stuff was propaganda against a strong female leader like we were just talking about. And maybe so, maybe not. But either way, Arawilo existed in some form. All right, if you want to know more, you might want to look up Arawilo, A-R-A-W-E-L-O, or alternatively, Carawilo, which is C-A-R-O-W-E-E-L-O, uh, Sanag, that is the region in which we presume she lived, S-A-N-A-A-G, and Somalis, S-O-M-A-L-I-S, if you want to learn more about the culture in which her legend arose. So that's about it for me this week on this front. I do have a little bit of news um, that I've, you know, added here to the end so that <laughs> you don't have to listen to it if you don't want to. You can just click on, click next. But um, I've started a Substack newsletter and podcast all about my bizarre adventures living in Italy. Since I feel like my preambles <laughs> in this podcast were getting a little preambly and I don't love that. Like I like it when things just kind of dive into what they're supposed to be doing. So I was like, you know what? I'm just going to make this its own thing. Uh, so if you are curious to check that out, you can go to utopiaitalia.substack.com. So that's U-T-O-P-I-A-I-T-A-L-I-A.substack.com. The large format essays and the corresponding podcasts of those essays are totally free. And for paid subscribers, and it's like $5.99 a month because 
you know, that's like not that much money for lots and lots of cool and interesting content. Uh, But there's also a mini podcast series that I'm calling Utopia Unfiltered, wherein I basically take a shot and then freeform chit chat about a topic suggested by a subscriber. Tons of fun. I think it's really interesting. So thanks for listening and I'll catch you next time and maybe I'll see you over at Utopia, an Italian study.